Hello, everybody. My name is Ben Mao, president of the Civil Rights Organization, East Coast Coalition for Tolerance and Non-Discrimination, and I'll be your host today. It's my great honor to be joined by Kim Campbell, the first and only woman prime minister of Canada. Previously, she was also the first woman to serve as defense minister of a NATO country, and also the first woman as Canadian attorney general and minister of justice. Ms. Campbell is also a founding member of Club de Madrid, uh, the organization is the world's largest form of democratically elected former presidents and prime ministers. The former heads of state and government that make up Club de Madrid's membership are the engine behind this drive and its work to strengthen democratic practice worldwide. Through the unique leadership experience and reach of the members, Club de Madrid stimulates dialogue, builds bridges, and puts forward policy recommendations that strengthen democratic practices on issues such as inclusion, sustainable development, and peace. Prime Minister Campbell, welcome to our program. Thank you. Thank you. Our conversation today is held in partnership with Club de Madrid's podcast, Democracy in Practice. Prime Minister Campbell, you co-founded Club de Madrid after you left elected politics in Canada. What motivated you to establish this unique organization back in 2001? Well, in two, 2001, an organization I was part of, the Gorbachev Foundation in North America, decided and, and was focused on economic reform, decided to do an event in Spain. And it's a long story. One of our members uh, was a Spanish philanthropist, was close friends with the king. And, and I said, if we're going to do, go to Spain, rather than doing something on economic reform, why don't we tell us, talk about something where Spain has a wonderful story to tell, which is democratic transition. And at that time, uh, it was the end of the Cold War and new countries were emerging to become democracies. And so Spain's story was really important. And um, anyway, to make a long story short, I was one of, a, of several former presidents and prime ministers who chaired uh, working groups and then met with a, a group of current presidents and prime ministers to talk about our results. And what was interesting was the chemistry between current and former leaders, because the former leaders could be very candid and um, you know, uh, unconstrained in their views. And for the current leaders, it was really interesting to be able to talk about issues with people who'd been there, done that, and from there, uh, we got the idea that maybe it would be useful to create an organization where former democratically elected presidents and prime ministers could offer their advice and experience and whatever else they had um, to current leaders. We've gone much beyond that now because what we discovered is that we have an incredible power to convene. Um, we've been able to uh, draw around us some really wonderful experts uh, around the world who are not formally elected people. But I think it's also true that each one of us wants to feel useful. You know, we, we, we are quite clear on the difference between being in power and out of power, and we have no, uh, <laughs> no illusions about that. But I think all of us went into public life because we thought it matters, and the chance to be able to use our experience and to uh, work in countries where people are trying to build democracy is incredibly rewarding. And so our members, they give their time for nothing. Um, you know, the club, you know, people pay our plane fare for flying off to Bishkek or someplace equally exotic but that the members are really, really proud and happy to share what they know. And uh, I always, I used to say when I first got involved that we, uh, if we can be a tile in the mosaic of progress, we will have uh, accomplished our goal. And speaking of Club de Madrid, one of the three main pillars of the organization's work right now is Next Generation Democracy. It's a project focused on engaging with younger generation in civic and political discourse in order to make democracies more sustainable. Prime Minister Campbell, how do you envision this project to help reverse some of the trends that we've seen in recent years, namely that young people, some a portion of young people are becoming increasingly frustrated and sometimes even disengaged from the political process because of either the vitriol in it or perhaps the general ineffectiveness sometimes in politics. 
Well, Binjung, I think the challenge is even greater now than when we first conceived of the program, because in the last few years, a number of things have happened that have taken a lot, taken a lot of us by surprise, you know, with the emergence of Donald Trump. Um, and all that is surrounding him now in American politics is something that I think we didn't, uh, we didn't foresee a resurgent authoritarianism in Europe. I mean, the situation we have now between Russia and Ukraine, I mean, there's a lot of things happening. And all that that does, um, in addition to making us, you know, even have to think harder, but it just even confirms the importance of democratic engagement. Because if you think about it, the one tool we have, you know, I think Harold Laswell, I want an American political scientist once said that um, that governance is the authoritative allocation of values. And what does that mean is that it's the, the right to, to be to authorize to, to do to make things happen. And when we live in a democracy, we may take that for granted that we have governments that can do things. So what we're seeing is that in fact that ability of government governments to govern is un, is under threat. So when we have a democracy, when we have those institutions, when we have a franchise, that is our, our secret weapon. It's the one thing we have that if we preserve it, however messy it may be, and democracy is a blunt instrument, it's not a precision tool. And it's only as good as the people who are its citizens and, its, and, and who are you know, the, being the, the people in their institutions. But if we lose that, if we lose that ability to actually choose our leaders, um, then we are really in trouble. And of course, even more important than that is the rule of law, is the ability to actually uh, make laws. That's this authoritative aspect of it, that you can uh, you have laws that are legitimate and that can make sure that all people are governed by the same rules. So if anything, um, the engagement of young people is more important than ever. Um, and, and something I would say is that I think all of us, I, I'm gonna be 75 in March, I can't believe it. <laughs> we all have a span of history that's real to us. I'm a post-war baby boomer. Both my parents were in uniform in World War II. My mother was in the Canadian Navy and trained as a radio operator to intercept the, the transmissions of German submarines in the North Atlantic and Gulf of St. Lawrence. I'm speaking to you from Italy where my dad fought in the Canadian Army in World War II. So for my generation, that huge battle and what that meant is very real. Um, but I remember later when I was teaching political science at UBC and realizing that, you know, I would be talking about things that were, you know, memories to me or things that were real to me and realized that they weren't real for my students. So we have to constantly, each generation has to re-engage. And one of the things I think that Club of Madrid members can do is, you know, first of all, be candid about the challenges because democracy is difficult, but also understand that some of the historical events that make it easy for us to be committed to democracy are not part of the radar, on the radar screen of younger generations that we have to reconnect with them. So for example, uh, last year on the, 20, uh, the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, the Canadian ambassador asked me to go and lay a wreath at a Commonwealth War Grave Cemetery uh, here near Florence because COVID she couldn't get everywhere. Well, there are many thousands of Canadians buried in Italy uh, who fought here in World War II. Um, and every Canadian who fought here was a volunteer. We had conscription, but only volunteers were sent overseas. And when you look at the tombstones and the ages, 20, 22, some, you, you see somebody who's 28, you think, oh, it's quite old. <laughs> I mean, because 
And when we stop and we think about the sacrifices that people made, and if you watch any of the documentaries about World War II, Netflix has an excellent series of colored footage now, which is quite interesting. And you'll see maps of where, you know, the Nat what parts of Europe that the Nazis controlled, which was basically all of it. You realize how close we came to losing democracies and how important it is to keep them. So when I look at these young people that, that, who died and gave their lives, I say, what do we owe them? Well, we owe them um, to preserve what they helped to win. So here in Italy, they, I mean, their democracy is very messy, but you know, uh, Canadians had a part in you know, pushing the Nazis out after the Italians changed sides. It's a complicated history. But the point is that people did these things and they made it possible for you and me, because both your generation and my generation, never to have to be that brave. We've never had to be that brave. And people would say to me, oh, Kim, you were so brave going into politics. And I'd say, well, yeah, you know, I had to face the slings and arrows of outrageous journalists, but I never feared for my life because other people put their lives on the line over the generations, not just of World War II, other times, to preserve a set of institutions that protected me and made it possible for me to participate without that fear. So reconnecting with young people and saying, you are the heirs of an enormous amount of sacrifice and bravery. And, um, and you know, also bad governance. I mean, we haven't always done everything we should. And there's also some other stories that you could talk about why it is so hard sometimes for, for governments to make the right decisions. Um, but I think um, reconnecting that generational sense of you know, why we're where we are and perhaps what we owe. I'm at the stage of my life now where I'm trying to think about you know, how can I be a good ancestor? And I think all of us at the Club of Madrid feel that part of what we're doing is to be a good ancestor is to try and preserve the gains of democracies uh, for future generations. But we also have to be grateful heirs uh, to those who went before us and made sacrifices and not uh, you know, throw away the family treasures, which in this case are democratic institutions and the rule of law. Yes, exactly. And I think the notion of living up to the legacies of the people who came before that is very inspiring and very crucial to our society today. And let's talk about your career in public service. In your memoir, Time and Chance, you wrote that you were elected the first woman president of the freshman class at UBC, the University of British Columbia. So you were uh, challenging these barriers early on, but if you were to tell your younger self that she will become you know, the first woman attorney general, the first woman national, minister of national defense, and then prime minister of Canada, what do you think she would say? Well, I think I would have been surprised because actually um, I didn't think of myself as going into politics, but I did want to do something more than my own life. I think partly because my parents were in uniform in the war and World War II. I mean, like all the movies and books, I mean, everybody was thinking about it. So I wanted to do, I wanted to contribute in some way to not having World War III, I guess I put it that way. So when I was a teenager, and instantly I was also the first girl to be student council president of my high school, if you can imagine. <laughs> Even got an article in the paper for that. It seems so funny now because it's such a common thing. But um, I wanted to be the first woman secretary general of the UN. So if you said to me, well, actually, you're going to go on and you're going to do these things, I would have thought, oh, that's interesting, because I hadn't really thought about doing that. But I did want to break down barriers for women. I, it was something, and I wasn't quite sure how to do it. As I say, my family were, my parents voted, they were good citizens, but nobody in my family was political, so I had no idea. I didn't even know how you became Secretary General of the UN. 
<laughs> the current incumbent is a good friend and actually one of the founding members of the Club of Madrid. <laughs> Yes, and I, and I think to this day, we, we still have that barrier right now. There has not been a woman uh, Secretary General of the United Nations. So, and, you know, in the career, throughout this career of public service, you've experienced a great number of ups and downs as a politician. And the road to becoming you know, first the cabinet minister and then the first female prime minister was undoubtedly challenging. So what do you want to share with young people today in terms of how to deal with setbacks and challenges? Well, what I would say is people often say to me, do you miss politics? And I say, I miss making real decisions. Um, to be involved, and I held elected office at all three levels of government, at the municipal level, the provincial level, and the federal level, the national level. And I think uh, all of those levels of government are really important. At the municipal level, people are affected immediately by your decisions. And often how people feel about democratic government is, is a reflection of, their experience at the local level. You know, does their city council serve them? I mean, is the school board functioning well for their children? All of these kinds of things really influence their predisposition to dem democracy in general and perhaps their willingness to get involved. So I would say to young people, first of all, being involved in democratic government can be a lot of fun. You don't have to run for office to do it. Uh, some of the, the best people I knew uh, and know, and then some of them have gone on to run for public office, but often these are the people who worked on campaigns, the people who worked as staffers uh, when I was uh, in my various levels of, of public life. I mean, smart, able people who could do the in-depth research that you need to help to support uh, good sound policy making. I mean, in other words, there's many, there are many pieces to the puzzle, but it is important. And even if you go off and you do a career that has something to do with politics, if as a citizen you vote, maybe you write a check to the party that you, uh, that you support uh, or a candidate that you support being helpful that way because sometimes people say, well, how do we get more women in politics? I say, well, write a check because sometimes women find it, they find, it's, they find it harder to ask, although more and more they're, they're, it's not so hard for them to get elected, but they are, women are not necessarily uh, as comfortable asking for campaign contributions. So, I mean, there are many ways, but, but to look at your society and say, how could I, you know, Jung Jung Mao or, you know, your neighbor or whatever, what, what is it that I have to give? Because maybe what I have to give is to be like a really good scientist or, uh, you know, a math professor or, a, um, you know, an, an, an astronaut or a lawyer, whatever. But you're still a citizen in that society who lives under the dome of that rule of law uh, as a legatee of others who've gone before you. Uh, and so that engagement and, and not becoming cynical, but understanding that democracy is complicated. And sometimes when governments don't do the things that we want them to do, it's because we as the people make it hard for them to do it. So we have to try to be enlightened citizens to be the constituents for good policy. So I think, but I think what really is important is to understand that the decisions that governments make affect flesh and blood human beings. They're not abstract. And every generation has to take on that mantle and make sure that the governments can preserve the interests. And we're now at a very difficult time in world history, not only with the, the challenges to the democratic gains that we, that we treasured over the last few decades, but with the challenge of climate change and what an unbelievable policy challenge that has turned out to be. Although I would never have thought that, that COVID vaccines could become a partisan or political issue. I mean, you think that's another thing of my generation. I was a little girl uh, in 1957 when the polio vaccine was created. 
and parents are in tears streaming on their faces because the thing that scared them so much was their kids getting polio. And now to be free of that worry, it was such a wonderful thing. Or antibiotics, all of these things. So you never know what's going to become a partisan issue. And so young people have to say, we're going to make sure that common sense and respect for knowledge and the willingness to constantly seek and, you know, and, and improve on our understanding of things will be part of the value you know, in our society that I will stand for, that I will protect. Yeah, well, that's a powerful reminder. You know, my mother is a, a doc, is a doctor. She, you know, shared all those stories with me in terms of you know the early vaccine rollouts. And I always hope that perhaps this one will be, perhaps not as smooth, but at least smooth in the sense that it's you know to the extent it's enough to to save people's lives. It's unfortunate of seeing you know all all the partisan fights on this. You must be scratching your head. <laughs> exactly. So let's uh, briefly talk about the complexity, as we mentioned, of partisanship in the political process in the democratic process in recent years. We've witnessed you know, rising political polarizations in many democracies in the United States, arguably perhaps the most, the most visibly, that has led to less and less cooperation across party lines. And some politicians may become very concerned about appearing weak by making any compromises. And instead they just always you know, block legislations to project strength. So from your perspective, what should be the role of compromise in the democratic process? Well, I think even within your own party, you have lots of disagreement. Um, in Canada, we have tended to have what we call big tent parties. In other words, parties where we try to have as broad geographical scope as possible to have the possibility of having a caucus that's nationally representative. But that means just by definition that people will have different priorities, different experiences, different histories, even within the country. And in fact, one of the exciting things about being a member of parliament was to go to Ottawa and to be working with people, uh, and particularly in my own caucus, whose experience of Canada was different from mine and having to learn and having to try and, and balance their, their needs and their priorities. So ideally, when it works well, it's a democratic governance can be a growth experience where people learn to do trade-offs, where they learn to respect, and the underlying uh, value is respect, respecting. So like even for example, when I became justice minister, um, you know, I didn't think that I could just you know, bring in any old legislation. I mean, the prime minister didn't give me a blank check. He gave me the responsibility of managing that legislative portfolio and making it possible to take my legislation through the caucus, through cabinet and into the house with, with support. Now, not all of my uh, bills had 100% support from uh, my caucus, but I always consulted broadly and I never made an enemy of someone who couldn't support it. If I had enough votes to take something through, I always treated the, those who didn't support it with respect. And what was interesting is that when I became a candidate for the leadership, I'm quite socially liberal. I was from Vancouver Center and I was pro-choice, pro-gay rights, I, you know, very, very much in, in the socially liberal, liberal part. And one of my colleagues um, who, who I'd worked with uh, came to see me, he was the chair of the Evangelical Caucus. And he said, if you become leader, Will you treat us with the same respect as you did when you were justice minister? And I said, well, John, I'm the same person I always was. And you know, my door is always open to you. I'm the same person. And he said, because we would like to support you, which was quite remarkable. And I think it's because they knew that they didn't necessarily represent the mainstream on many issues, but they wanted to have an impact. And I always listened to them. And if there was something that I could massage or, 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 or you know, include that would give them some comfort, I would try to do that. Um, but I never 
the point is that their constituents sent them to Ottawa also, and they had as much right to advocate for them as I did for my constituents. And the, the views that I had may have been more mainstream, more able to gain support to pass legislation, but there was nothing to be gained by insulting or excluding those who didn't share my views because they shared my views on a lot of other things. So I think, and there was a time in democratic systems, you see this in the United States where the most respected senators were the ones who were known as the deal makers, the ones who could find the common ground. And that's what I always felt was important. You, say, you listen to somebody and they, you say, well, I don't agree with them. And you say, well, is there anything in what they've said that I can support? You know, where, and what, can we start from there to find, to build something. And again, because you see in the United States, it's a complex, huge society. If you can, no one person can speak for everybody. So that is an important culture. And, but one of the things that we've seen, and I think it's because of a lot of unwise economic policies too, and if somebody would finally put a torch to trickle down economics, it would, we'd be a much happier world. But growing inequality, uh, I think has also fed polarization. If people uh, no longer feel that the system is working for them. And so the outlook of people from my generation is quite different from that of, of today's generation, which is why incidentally in parliaments, you don't just need uh, gender and ethnic diversity, you need generational diversity because it's sometimes hard for people uh, to recognize that the outlook of young people or people a generation behind them is not their outlook because their experience isn't the same. The opportunities haven't been the same. So I think that, that the, the the, the value of listening and finding common ground is fundamental to democracy. But when not everybody feels that the system works for them uh, or that it's worth the effort, then you have a very dangerous, a dangerous situation. Yes, and speaking of all the social challenges that we're confronting right now, one of the challenges have been the surge in anti-Asian hate crimes and racism in multiple countries. Uh, across the world during this pandemic. And it has been very alarming and heartbreaking. Last year in June, there was an article on Bloomberg that showed Vancouver has seen a 700% increase in anti-Asian hate crimes, making the city you know, the one with the highest percentage of increase um, of, among all cities in North America. So from this perspective, and that you know, the, the, the issue, the topic of anti-Asian hate crimes was barely addressed on perhaps the international level or even the national level sometimes before this pandemic. What do you think caused this discrepancy? And do you think we have any tools at our disposal to prevent this mistake from happening again in the future? Well, first of all, I mean, I think there has to be you know, honesty. And one of the things that leads to, to hate crimes is, is stereotyping. So for example, there have been some issues in, in, in Vancouver about money laundering and people in China using the casinos to, to launder money. That's a real issue. But can, Vancouver has a, a huge Chinese community, some of them go back generations, back to the, the end of the 19th century. And to sort of look at a Chinese person and say, oh, well, you're responsible for that. Or then there was this stupidity of Donald Trump talking about you know, the Kung flu. I mean, then there's these people who, who stir things up to try and create hate and usually to, to distract attention from themselves and their own failings. But these are, I mean, the stereotyping and, and, and assuming that because one person of a certain group, a woman, I remember once hearing when Indira Gandhi sent the Indian army into the Golden Temple in Amritsar, and I'm listening to the radio in Vancouver and a man saying, well, I always supported women in politics until Indira Gandhi. And I thought, oh, I was supported men in politics until Attila the Hunt and Alok III. I mean, it's this thing where, where one person 
does something and you say, okay, all people like that are bad. But it's also, I think the case that sometimes when people are feeling um, frustrated that, uh, and I'm not excusing it because it's not an acceptable thing, but where the idea of lashing out at identifiable people, you know, makes them feel, you know, powerful or, or whatever. And I mean, there's, or, or maybe it's better to say that the thugs among us, those who have thuggish tendencies or are tempted towards that kind of thuggishness, find that, that when they can uh, you know, exploit stereotypes, that gives them a victim and it makes them feel you know, important. But it's, it, it's something that we have to all push back at. Um, and, and you see it in all sorts of different ways and whether it's from racism or homophobia or sexism. And a lot of people don't realize the, you know, you've seen this, you know, women journalists and things and that, you know, terrible things and people even assaulting them on camera, you know, when they're doing an interview, blah, blah, blah. And somebody comes up, I mean, people who think they have the right to do this or that they're making a statement by doing this. And, you know, who does she think she is or who does he think he is? Um, but that's, it hasn't always been the case uh, in, in the Canada that I know that people behave that way. And as you spoke about the rise, the 700% rise, it, it, that's, that's from a, a base where it wasn't so common. But we have to be, and, and politicians have a very strong, leaders of all kinds, not just political leaders, have a very strong moral obligation not to frame issues in a way that feed that kind of stereotype and 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 violence and discrimination. When I was a little girl, I used to ask my mother how Hitler came to power. And she said to me, well, he was a very charismatic leader and you know, people would just get very excited and you tell these things. And she talked about Joseph Goebbels and the big lie technique that they had. So when I was in high school and I discovered that I could move people when I spoke, it actually frightened me a little because I kept thinking, oh, this is a two-edged sword, you know, and and, and so when people are leaders and when they have the capacity to inspire uh, support, and it's often a kind of you know, chemistry or charismatic thing, or people feel that you know, you're one of them or whatever, it carries with it a huge moral authority, moral responsibility, because you could use it to whip people up to do terrible things that they will then later be terribly ashamed of. And the other thing too, is when you see people who do these things, uh, it's not just, what they do at the time and the crimes they commit. You see, think for example, the rise of Nazi, the whole Nazi regime in Germany. But you leave a kind of tainted history where for people to get over that, to, to deal with the guilt of what happened in their society, you will always then have people who don't want to accept that guilt. You know, the neo-Nazis, the people you know, who, who, who don't accept, the Holocaust deniers. So that kind of abuse of the capacity of leadership has long has a long tail, has multiple impacts and resonance in a way that's very, very destructive. But at, the thing I would say about, about Churchill, one of the things that was good about him, and he was a complicated person, but I think most people agree he was the right person in the right place at that time. But he appealed to the British, not with hatred so much, he appealed to them to, 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 to believe in themselves to feel good about themselves. I mean, he doesn't just even talk about the hunt, whatever, but mostly he was talking about what we can do and how hard it's gonna be for us, but we will endure because we have 
our rule of law, we have our democratic system that we want to preserve. And that's a much safer way of using that power to mobilize people because they will never be ashamed for being brave, but they will be ashamed if they were complicit in crimes. And that's a generational taint that isn't fair to impose on anyone. Thank you so much, Prime Minister Campbell, for your insights and for being on our program today. I'd like to thank you and close by saying and wishing all our viewers good health during this challenging time. Thank you and take care. And thank you for being, uh, for encouraging young people to be involved. Uh, it's the most important thing. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you so much.